I'm so glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, before we get started with our message, we're going to enter into our time of communion. And over this season of communion, we've been looking at questions, and we've been taking them two weeks at a time. So we'll, we'll ask a question, uh, and we'll spend that week just reflecting on it, asking ourselves, talking to God about that question, and then we followed up a second week to continue that reflection, to continue growing. So our last question was, did the Bible live in me today? And in our time, our age of participation trophies, and everybody gets a thumbs up and a sticker, we love to pat ourselves on the back when we do well, right? Uh, yes, look at me, God. I did what my boss told me to without grumbling. Yeah, look at me, yeah. Uh, I didn't yell at my kids when they got out of line. Look at me, God. See, I did well. I, the Bible did live in me today. Um, fortunately, God gives us the free will to live that out. The flip side of free will is that we screw up a lot. We screw up a lot. Um, and so today, our, our question is, did I disobey God in anything? <laughs> Easy question to answer. Tougher answer to swallow. Uh, we've been screwing up free will from the very beginning. Uh, our students have been looking at a couple different stories uh, that are, are talking about this. And Refuge is that we've been looking at Adam and Eve, and they were given free will. They were given the opportunity to live in this beautiful garden, to name all the animals and eat everything except the fruit from one tree. God said, everything is yours. I have made all this good stuff for you. Just don't do this one thing. So what did they do? They did that one thing. It's kind of like the first time that you're left alone without a babysitter. You're like 12, 13, whatever. You're like, yes, freedom, right? And your parents say, okay, uh, before we leave, one rule. Don't go in the cookie jar. So they walk out the door, turn on the car, pull out of the garage. You, you look out the window and you're like, they're gone. They'll never know. First thing you do, cookie jar, right? You know that you're going to get caught, but you still, that's the first thing that you do. Free will. Did we disobey God in anything? Well, yeah. Uh, Revive has been looking at, the, in Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So as opposed to Adam and Eve's blatant disregard for God's rule, uh, God's one rule that he gave them, uh, Ananias and Sapphira did something a little different. See, they were a part of the first church. And they sold some land and brought the money that they received uh, as an offering to that first church. Now, we're, again, that sounds like a good thing, right? They're like, yeah, look at me. I, I, did a, I did a good thing. The problem was they said that they had given all of the money that they earned from selling that land. Peter, uh, who was notified by God, he's like, hey, uh, you need to talk to these two. They, they didn't do what they said. Um, so Peter confronts Ananias, and he says, Yo, Ananias, uh, you, you said you gave everything that you earned from selling this land. Is, is that true? And I was like, yeah, totally. I gave everything that I have. I'm all in. And Peter said, well, no, God, God knows you, you didn't. Ananias dropped dead like that. Whew. Then Sapphira, who didn't know her husband was, was dead yet, came in and same thing. Uh, Sapphira, did you guys give everything that you had from the selling of that land? Totally. Yeah, we did. She drops dead. Um, now, again, that, that might seem harsh, but it was made clear to these, these people that it was their land to sell. They didn't have to do it. Then the, the money that they earned, it was theirs to donate. They didn't have to do it. 
And yet they, they turned and they, they tried to make themselves look good by lying. So whether it's a direct um, act of disobedience like Adam and Eve, or it's this thing that, you know, it's, it's still good, right? They still donated a lot of what they had. No, they, the intent wasn't there. They, they lied about that. We deal with that kind of junk all the time. Whether it's, again, the way that we talk to our coworkers or our families, uh, whether it's uh, the things that we do alone with a screen, whether that's phone, computer, or whatever, uh, we struggle with disobeying God. And the problem is, God tells us that uh, he gave us free will so that we can love him, and to love God is to fully obey God. To not love God is to disobey God. So every time that you disobey, you are telling God, I don't love you fully. I don't love you completely. That's heavy. That's hard. Um, so right now, we're going to give you about a minute to reflect on something that our students uh, have actually both partaken in in the last week. And that's an opportunity to, to just dwell on um, that thing, whether it's a habit, whether it's an activity, um, whatever it is. That one thing uh, where you know you're in blatant disobedience uh, to God. Again, we're not, not like God's going to come strike you with lightning because you do these things. Uh, but if we want to love God, if we say we love God wholly and completely, we need to kick these habits from our life. So take this time to, to reflect on whatever that thing is. Start talking with God. God, I'm, I'm sorry for doing blank. What do I need to do to make this right? Uh, at the end of our silence, uh, a video will begin to play, and at that time you can move to one of four stations around the room, two in the front, two in the back, and, uh, and partake in communion.
Pray with me. You taught us to pray those words, give us this day our daily bread. And we're reminded in this moment that you give that bread again and again and again. Father, you gave us the bread of your Son. The bread of your Son that gives us all the spiritual nourishment we need. And then you gave us the bread of your Word as well that we can feed on day after day after day, and as we do, we can learn what it means to walk humbly with you, to show mercy, to obey completely. I thank you for the food that you provide us. Today, as we partake of this meal together, I pray that it would be one that would would strengthen uh, our, our, our walk, our journey, our race with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, there are four Sundays in March, and then Easter. And Easter, if you have not noticed it yet, falls on April 1st. There's kind of this really beautiful theme going on this year. Lent started on Valentine's Day, the day of love, and it ends on April 1st, April Fool's Day. There's a sermon hiding in there, I promise you. It's been, it's been baking. It's, it's, it's there. During our journey to the cross, uh, we've chosen to look at someone who was completely transformed by Jesus, the Apostle Peter. He was a simple man. He had no formal education. He fished for a living, kind of the ideal life. He was chosen by Christ to be one of the 12 disciples. We saw last week that he was outspoken. He, he could go from a, from a gold star observation. I mean, this is, wow, Peter, that was brilliant to billy goat status, quite literally, in the same conversation. Being outspoken was both his greatest strength and his greatest weakness, much like many of us. Our greatest strength is also our greatest weakness, right? For him, outspokenness at times led to overreach, to going just one step too far. He was also a man who fell, and I mean, he fell hard. Three times on the night that Jesus is being tortured, Three times he denies knowing Jesus. 
In Christ's moment of, of greatest need, Peter ran in the other direction. Even though he promised I'll be there, even though he promised I will fight with you, I'll die for you, he ran away. We might think this might lead to those dreaded words from Jesus, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. But instead, he's invited by the Savior three times, three times to come back home. He is recalled. And so we're looking at Peter this Lent because I think in him we see a lot of us. We're able to look at this guy and go, hmm, that's me. We get it wrong sometimes. And by the way, cookie jar? <laughs> no. With him it was, please, your sister needs to be in the same condition she was when we left the house, okay? <laughs> anyway, cookie schmucky. Let's get to the real point. We can get it wrong sometimes. Sometimes we royally mess up. And yet this Savior does not cast us out or cast us aside. No, he invites us back home. Maybe this Lent will serve as a homecoming for you. After all, if he can forgive a guy who publicly rejected him three times, he can forgive us too. And, and if he's willing to use a guy who turned his back on Jesus, he would be more than willing to use our brokenness for his greater purposes. Peter wrote two letters, and these letters are they are just full of his personality. I, I suspect in his early fishing career, he never, ever dreamed he would actually be a person who wrote literature. Literature that ultimately was leather-bound and became part of the greatest book that's ever been written. So what we want to do this morning is set a little background. The letter starts this way. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. Whenever we talk about understanding the Bible, when we talk about doing personal Bible study, we always encourage you to look at context, to understand context. Context can mean many things. For example, it can mean how does this particular sentence fit into the verse, fit into the paragraph, fit into the chapter, fit into the New Testament. I mean, talk about children. Children are great at picking out the one sentence and saying, you said, and missing the paragraph, right? It's important to know how the sentence fits into the paragraph. That's literary context. But there are other contexts that need to be explored as well. Historical context. Along with that, there might be geographical context. When was this letter, letter written? Where was it written? To whom was it written? To understand the whole book, we need to understand something not only about the author, we need to understand something about the recipients. Who were these people to whom Peter was writing? Well, he calls them God's chosen people. That could mean two things. First of all, it, it may generally mean it was written to a group of believers. It's written to the church. We are God's chosen people. But it also might mean that they were Jews. I mean, in the Old Testament, they're referred to as God's chosen people. So it could be just Christians generally, or it could be Jewish Christians. Further, he refers to them as foreigners. The New International Version puts it this way. To God's elect, exiles scattered. He said they were living in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. 
So you have this scattered idea. Often when, he's talk, when, the, when the writers are talking about scattering, they're talking about the Jewish people scattered throughout the world. So this may seem to reinforce that, that perhaps they are Jews who have become Christians. And then he describes them with complementary language. He says, you're known by God, you're chosen by God, you're made holy by the Spirit, you're obedient. Well, here's what I want you to do this week. I'm not going to do your homework for you. You're going to do it yourself. I want you to explore who these people are and how knowing who they are influences our understanding of this particular letter. So you can use a study Bible. Some of you have one of those Bibles that it's not just the Bible itself, but there are notes at the bottom and columns down the middle. You might look in there and, and try to learn. So what does scattered mean? Or, or where is Bithynia? I've always wanted to go there. You know, what, what, what's going on there? What, what is there to know about this from a study Bible? You may pick up a, a, a commentary, a commentary on First Peter. You can, you know, kindle that thing. You may even want to take a search on the interweb, but of course, beware. There is always some dude sitting in mommy's basement writing nutty stuff. So use discernment. Maybe you'll just talk to a friend. Talk to your journey group. So what did you learn about this? Who are these people? And how does knowing who they are influence our understanding of what Peter is going to write to them and what Peter writes to us as well? Now, there are five chapters in this book, and we have four weeks to cover it. Rather than doing a chapter-by-chapter chapter study, we're going we're gonna to unfold four major themes in the book. Salvation, suffering, submission, and servanthood. And we'll start today with salvation. I'm going to have Brian uh, do the reading today. We're actually going to read from uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. And he's going to read uh, the first section right now. So if you're following along, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 in your Bible or on the screen. And again, if you're following along on your own, we're using the NIV. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer great grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So Peter starts this epistle with some energy. 
He's really pumped for an apostle. He's, I mean, he's got juice. Why? Well, he gets to talk about the most important thing a human can ever talk about, and that is salvation. He says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. He describes salvation as new birth. Now, you don't need to be a religious scholar or even the child of a pastor to know intrinsically, to know internally, to know intuitively that something's not right in this world. Something just doesn't smell right. Something about life is a little off. It's like listening to to gifted musicians play maybe a piano that has a string out of tune or a guitar that, that isn't quite tuned properly. You know it's supposed to be music, but something just doesn't sound right. Maybe you know it about your own life today. It's not that everything is bad, but it's just everything isn't as good as it could be either. Maybe something feels missing or messed up. You just kind of shake your head at the world. You shake your head at your world. You see, you were born for more. You were born for God. The theologian Ignatius writes in his first principle and foundation, the goal of our life is to live with God forever. We were made for God. Yet when we were born, we were born in a state of sin. And that sin created separation. It created a barrier between us and God. Why do you feel off? Why do you have this internal sense of something being missing or messed up? Well, on your own It is not possible to fulfill the truest sense, the truest reason for your existence. Why is Peter so excited? The reason for which we have been created has finally been revealed. You can live with God forever. And by the way, forever is not just then and there, okay? It's here and now. Now is part of forever. Forever doesn't start at your funeral. It's not like, you know, you die and then boom, forever begins. You're not going to stop existing and then start up again. I love the teaching of the philosopher Dallas Willard. In 2012, he knew he was dying of pancreatic cancer. It was clear that his body was not winning this war. He's talking to his good friend, John Orkberg. And here's what he said. I think that when I die, die, it might be some time until I know it. Just think about that for a minute. I think that when I die, it might be some time until I know it. He said that for the one who trusts and follows Jesus, death itself has no power to interrupt life. He also said it this way, eternal living begins today. We don't have to wait until we get to heaven. We can know the reality of divine life and glory in increasing measure starting now. Why is Peter so excited? New birth. Because of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, humans can realize in this lifetime the reason for which they were created. The goal of our life is to live with God forever. Now he goes on to say, This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. What is Peter saying? Well, here and in other parts of his letter, he will remind us, that there is an eternal element to our salvation. There is life beyond this life. And salvation prepares us for that life. He calls it an inheritance. 
And he says that inheritance is being protected by God himself and will be fully realized or experienced when we die. It will be revealed to us, he said, in the end. Now, this is important for us to understand. Look at verse 9. It says, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That wording is really interesting. For you are receiving. That, that, that wording is, is it's present tense. And the present tense in Greek indicates an ongoing activity. It's not something that happened and is done. It's something that, it's a process that is, that is continuing. Peter, Paul, and others help us to see that salvation is not just a dot in time. Boom. Done. Over. It is not a, it's not a prayer we pray so we can go to heaven when we die. Salvation is, is a process. And it's composed of three parts. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Now, justification. Justification is that moment, in that very moment, that your sins were forgiven and you were made right with God. And so it is fair to say we were saved. We were saved in that moment. Period. Over. Done. But here's the thing. Justification is one part of salvation. There is also sanctification and there is glorification. Let's hit the last one next. Glorification. If, if salvation is a sentence, then glorification is the period at the end of the sentence. Boom. It, it's the end of the sentence, okay? Salvation complete. We will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Mortal body becomes immortal. Sin is gone. It's done. I don't even want to do it anymore. It has no control over me. The middle part between justification and glorification, that's sanctification. Think about it. If you've been justified and you're not dead yet, you're being sanctified, which is pretty much the room, right? So here we are. We're, we're in this middle part, justification. Your sin has been forgiven, but you still exist in a sin-infected body and in sin-infested world. There is a now and not yetness about our salvation. Yes, you are saved, no doubt. But you are being saved because you're not glorified yet. We hear this in-betweenness in Peter's language in verse 6 when he says, In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, we, we have a whole week that we're going to devote to suffering. So we're just going to leave that part of the verse alone for now. But sin and suffering are ongoing realities of the sanctification sage. It's here, right? Suffering, Peter says, is a purifier. He makes reference to faith as being refined by suffering the same way gold is made pure by fire. Now, this is important. Suffering doesn't make us more saved. It's not, it's not that I suffer a little bit more so that I can be a little bit more saved than I was before. Further, in suffering, we do not pay for our sins. This is not some form of penance. I'm, I'm paying for the sin that I've committed along the way. Nor does suffering remove our sin. He says this, that suffering proves the genuineness of our faith. That as we suffer, we can actually see that this faith that we have is real. I was going through this and my mind turned to my father-in-law who died last fall. 
person after a person who attended to him in the, in the hospital, doctors who cared for him literally for years, attested again and again to the fact that the way Dave suffered revealed something genuine in him. They saw something real in him because of the way he faced his suffering. Suffering opens opportunity for our faith to show off. Notice I didn't say it gives us an opportunity to show off. It gives an opportunity for our faith to show off, for people to see something going on in us. The way we endure pain can draw attention to our Savior. Now, I like Peter's approach. He's practical. Fishermen are that way, right? Very practical. Why am I here? Catch fish. That's why I'm here. Period. Pretty easy. Nothing else. Peter is answering a question in this chapter. What's the goal of salvation? So I got this thing. What's it all about? What's the goal of salvation? Well, no doubt the goal of salvation is eternal. It is heaven. It is eternity with God. I get to be with God forever. But the goal is not just then and there. The goal is also here and now. Most of the letter does not dwell on life after this life. It it talks about life now. It centers on the sanctification spot in which we are living now. Now, if all this is a little confusing, take heart. He says even the prophets and the angels don't get it. Even they kind of shake their heads and say, I don't completely understand this. What in the world is this all about? He says the prophet searched intently and with great care, trying to understand all the details. He writes, even angels are trying to figure it out. They don't get God's grace. That It just boggles their minds. Our goal is not perfect understanding, but perfected faith. It's not perfect understanding, but perfected faith to believe, to trust. This is what Peter said in in one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. 1 Peter 1, starting with verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know, it might be easy to look at Peter and James and John and Andrew and the other disciples and say, of course you believed in him. You were in the boat with him. We're just hearing about him. And Peter says, exactly. Though you haven't seen him, you have intense love for him. Even though you've not seen him with your own eyes, you believe in him. Though, you're, though your own eyes cannot prove it, you love him. Though your mind cannot explain every detail, you believe. And this is leading to that inexpressible joy, the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So I want to spend the balance of our time talking about sanctification, this space in which we currently live. And Brian's going to go ahead and read now from from verse 13 of chapter 1 on through verse 3 of chapter 2. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober... Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you who is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. 
For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to, be, to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Mm. Thanks, Luca. So, what are the important elements of sanctification? How does it work? Well, the first element that, that Peter lists is alertness is alertness. Live wide awake. Open up your eyes. Live wide awake. Justification wakes us up. Justification takes us by the spiritual shoulders, shakes us, and wakes us up. We're not sleepwalking anymore. Prior to Christ, we were sleepwalking through this life. Not anymore. With minds fully alert and sober, he says. Peter plays on this alert theme more than once in his letter. In chapter 5, starting with verse 8, he says, Be alert and sober-minded. Same wording. For your enemy, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Catch that at the end. He's basically saying you can't use suffering as an excuse for disobedience. You can't use suffering as the reason to say, I'm not going to follow fully after God. We need to live life fully awake. Awake to the realities of the world around us. Awake to the temptations within us. Awake to the enemy who stands against us. Wake up and stay awake. Second element, obedience. Obedience. In verse 14, he said, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Why do lost people disobey? Because they don't know what God wants. But we now know. So if we now know, why in the world would we live like we don't know? He says, live as a person who knows. How appropriate is our question this week? Did I disobey God in anything? At this moment, a couple weeks ago, I mentioned that Blake Hersberger, one of our church kids who's studying uh, Bible, he, he, he finally asked me the question I've been waiting for. You know, this is just kind of the classic ethics question. So if you were in Nazi Germany and, you know, and you were hiding uh, Jews from the Nazis and they came to your door and said, do you have any Jews in there? Would you say yes or no? Would you lie or tell the truth? It's funny that back when I was 22 years old, my knee-jerk immediate reaction would have been, of course, I'd tell the truth. I wouldn't want to disobey, but disappoint God. I, I, I'm going to tell the truth. And in that moment, I found myself saying, uh, I probably lie. And I wondered, I, this, this was really convicting. I sat there and wondered what shifted in me. 
What shifted in me that before I used to ask immediately the question having to do with God, and now I was getting a lot more pragmatic and just saying, hey, I just want to make sure I keep these people safe. It was, it was, it was troubling to me. And I know somebody tried to relieve my conscience after church by saying, well, what about Rahab? She's commended in the Bible for, for hiding the slaves. She's commended for hiding the slaves. She's commended for her faith. She's not commended for lying. And some of you are going, so what? Ah, it's a big so what. It's a big so what. As we, as we think through, here's the issue, the issue of the question, right? Did I disobey God in anything? Am I hurting the heart of God? Am I hurting? It's not about whether or not it works for me or not. Am I hurting the heart of God? Why does this matter? Peter tells us in the next verse. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. I'm not obeying to gain my salvation. I'm not obeying to pay for my sins. I'm obeying to reflect my true nature, my original state, the nature of my Father in heaven. He's holy and I want to be holy. I want to be just like Dad. I think one of the greatest dangers of seeing heaven as being for later, going to heaven when we die, that sort of thing, is a false belief that we can do whatever we want now. We, we tend to live in a cheap grace that says, I'm forgiven, I'm going to heaven, so I might as well just live for me for now. My motivation should be to be an earthly reflection of my heavenly Father. And this comes through obedience. As I obey, I reflect the nature of my heavenly Father, the Holy One. So alertness, obedience. The third is perspective. Both Peter and Paul refer to us with these words. Alien, non-resident, foreigner. Uh, the more modern hymn writer wrote, this world is not my home. I, I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm not a citizen of this place. If you don't feel at home here, good. You're not supposed to. We grow in sanctification as we hold this place more and more loosely. God wants us to live like we do not live here. So alertness, obedience, perceptive. And the last one is to crave he lists what we, what we might be tempted to crave. He says, rid yourself of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, and every kind of evil. He, he says, spit that stuff out of your mouth. Just get rid of that. Don't, don't crave that stuff. Instead, like newborn babies, crave spiritual milk. So that by it, you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. You got a good taste of God. He's the good thing you are missing. So come on, crave the right thing. It's really not a complicated process. Wake up. Some of you just don't. Oh, yeah. I know. Wake up, literally. Obey. See this place for what it is, not my home. And crave the good stuff and spit out the rest. Justified, my sin is forgiven. Glorified, I'm just like Jesus. Sanctification, the part between believing and the burial. That's where we live right now. What is Peter saying? The goal of our salvation is not just heaven when we die but to be more and more like him. Every day we are here. So stay awake. Obey. This place isn't home. Crave the good stuff. This past week I was um, <clears throat> driving through Joliet and going down 52. And I, and I came uh, almost to 55 to the, the cemetery there at the side of the road. And it's a warm day. And, and it's kind of a, a, a unique time of year uh, for me, for the life of our church. It was 15 years ago, 15 years ago, 
that we had a late snowstorm. And there was a 13-year-old boy who was a friend of our church who went out and played in the snow, and the snow collapsed on him, and he died. And um, he was a great kid. He, 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 was, he didn't go to our church, but, but he hung around our church a lot. Kind of considered himself my little associate pastor. And uh, got to know him really well. And I stood there the other day, staring at his gravestone, the words on it, the beginning, the end, this picture there. And, and I couldn't help but realize and, and appreciate and understand that um, I get to see him again. And I get to see him again because of this church. Because a couple years before, he came to one of our day camps and as the leaders up front and his leader talked to him about his spiritual condition, he decided to trust in Christ as the forgiver of his sin and the leader of his life. He had that moment of justification. And we were, he had a very, very short season of sanctification, right? But it was a tough one. It was brutal. Kid, he was, he was a little overweight and, and he was a little geeky by his own admission. And he was picked on mercilessly. The very day he died, someone at school said to him, I hope you die. And later that night he was with Jesus. And what was interesting is that the way he suffered was testimony to the kind of faith he had. So there I am standing at St. Ray's Cathedral talking about the life of Ryan in light of his Savior and the difference he made. Why do we get excited about salvation because it is the thing we do. I mean, if we're all about having a, you know, a great potluck, we're missing the point. We can eat for all of eternity. The thing we do is bring people safely home to God. And we got the chance to live out this first chapter with, with him and with many, many other people. This is the thing, much like Peter, this is the thing that should excite us. That as we come to tomorrow and recognize that Ryan is no longer in this world, he is able to experience in fullness the world that is to come because of his relationship with Jesus. And you were part of that. All we are is beggars holding bread, saying, do you want some of my bread? Do you want a taste of the bread? And we get the chance to bring people safely home to God. Lord Jesus Christ, bread of life. Thank you for feeding us. And for teaching us to share your food with a lost, a broken, and a dying world. Thank you for salvation. Amen. As a church, um, we never back down on the fact that we believe that kids need the chance to get to know God. And anybody that would say, you know, you spend too much focus on kids, not enough focus on adults, hey, I'll wear that badge with honor. Kids can come safely home to God, and they do. One of those opportunities is coming up here in June. I want you to review it while our servers come to collect the offering.
Love is an ocean, you can drown me. The sweet embrace, the lovely taste, I taste the sea. I'm under grace, the place to be. It means I'll never need an umbrella. I'm cool in the cold, in the hot weather. Whether or never I ever understand I'm a man in the hands of great plans. I stand with faith and a life I never known to touch. Instead, I stop my clutch, but I'm like, what's the dream of? What's the hope in? What's the doubt for? Live to no end. This is living. The life I've been given is a gift. If I'm a living, I'm a living to death. So what's the dream of? What's the hope in? What's the doubt for? And live to no end. This is living. The life I've been given is a gift. If I'm a living, I'm a I love this trip so much. And every time I watch this stupid video, I catch something new. Uh, and I totally forgot the one thing. I, Avery caught it too. Uh, Chloe, her, her mom was calling her. And it, for some reason, her phone set, like it said, Brian P. or mom. So, Cindy, I don't know. Uh, we need to have a conversation like this. We, we're tag teaming the, the parenthood thing here. But anyway, um, yeah, Green Lake, we have uh, finally opened up registration, which I'm stoked about. Uh, if all the details are, are there for you. Uh, we're doing things a little differently this year, so you want to make sure to, to read up on that. If you have any questions about what's going on, please talk to me or go to the welcome desk. Uh, ask any of the leaders that go on this trip. It's just it's an incredible time. We leave that place changed by all the work we do, but we also leave that place changed by 
the things that, that we do, all right? And again, the relationships that are built there, uh, the, the everything, like it's just, it's an amazing, amazing time. So if you have a student, please send them with us. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, there are other announcements up there, but I'm going to ignore them because I'm the student guy. So we have two more, in two weeks, two Wednesdays from now, we are having our big our big box game night, and one of the things that we still need are these empty fridge pop boxes. Even if the thing is ripped off, we can still take them, uh, but please, please, please help us out. We have a good head start, but Riley has put our dentist and our doctor on speed dial uh, because I've been trying to power through as much pop as possible, and she thinks I'm going to die. Uh, so please put my wife at ease and help, and, uh, help the cause there. Uh, you can just throw them in the back room there whenever uh, you bring them in. That's great. And then the first Sunday of spring break, which I believe is the 25th, we are having an extra hour of revive because we're doing a photo scavenger hunt where we're driving all throughout the community. Some might go to Morris, some might go to Joliet. It's going to be a lot of fun. So that's just a heads up on what's happening with students. Again, if you have any questions, come and see me. Uh, and then one more, one last little plug. If you are 20-something, five minutes away, Yost's house, this afternoon, we're having lunch. If you have questions, Danios is right there. I'm right here. We're all going. It's going to be a good time. So come hang with us for lunch. If you would, please stand and we'll pray as we leave today. God, we are so honored that we get the opportunity to come here and freely worship you today. I pray uh, that, that the message of this morning uh, would, would stick with us throughout the week and that we'd be able to start analyzing that, that question that we asked at the beginning. In what ways do we disobey you? And rather than, than ignoring it, if we know the answer, ignoring uh, the, the solution, God, help us to be proactive and to, to seek out help from the people around us and, and from you, God, from your word. Um, again, be with us this week as we start that journey. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great week.